We all know about loss, don't we? As Pastor Joe said, I lost something a week ago Friday. My mother. Still trying to figure out what I'm supposed to feel and how I'm supposed to think about that. And the father, who's many miles away, whose vocation for the last few years has been caring for my mother, He's got to find a new vocation now. (laughs) He's experienced loss. But we all know about loss. You know you can lose your keys. Can I get a witness? You can lose your wallet. You can lose your patience, your cool, or your temper. You can lose a dream or a wish. You can lose a job. You can lose a day, an hour, a moment. You can even lose an idea. You can lose weight. It's getting a little personal. You can lose a competition or an argument. You can lose a friend. You can lose intellectual and physical capacities. Your memory. Or we have that phrase, you can lose your mind, which means a number of different things. You can lose your way, your values, your sense of right or wrong, or in some parts of the country, we say you can even lose your religion. We all know about loss. Loss is an absolutely unavoidable aspect of life. We like to pretend that it's not, but it is, and the sooner we accept that, the better off we are going to be. Every time we say yes to something, you realize you're saying no to something else, right? It's a kind of loss. Now, the moment I start talking about loss, I run the risk of losing your attention. Because you start to become consumed, don't you, with your own sense of loss. But that's okay. Because today I want to invite you to think about loss. I want you to think about what you've lost. I want you to think about what we've lost. I want us to think about how did it happen, and I want us to think about what do we do when something is lost. I say this because I want you to know that it's okay if you don't remember everything from a sermon. You know that, right? Someone told me the other day that sometimes they, if they open the car door in the parking lot, they may have forgotten most of the sermon. That's all right. It's okay because sermons are really not designed or they shouldn't be to give you some kind of complete answer to some question you didn't even know you're supposed to ask. A good sermon, like a good story, should provoke you and disrupt you, maybe disorient you, and really importantly, give you something to chew on. Now, what you're chewing on could be life-changing for sure, but really, it's the Holy Spirit that grabs you, and it's the Holy Spirit that gives you something to chew on. I hope the Holy Spirit will give you something to chew on this morning. You see, Jesus knew this, and I think that's why Jesus taught in stories. In the series we've been doing here in church, preaching all the way through the Bible that we call the story, we are now traveling into the Gospels. And so we wanted to do a little something different as we're in the Gospels. We thought we would focus on the stories of Jesus, that is, the stories that Jesus himself told. You know those as parables. Now, Jesus taught primarily with stories, the Bible tells us. 
But parables were not an invention of Jesus, and they were not, in fact, new to Judaism either. In fact, you can find teaching stories or parables in the Old Testament as well. Some of you may remember in 2 Samuel 12, where Nathan tells David a story to convict him of the sin of stealing Bathsheba and killing her husband. You remember that? And the story convicts and disrupts, and David is changed by the story. We want to focus in this new little section on what Jesus taught with stories because, first of all, these stories are kind of like a gospel in the gospel. Jesus tells stories that correspond to his life and to his ministry. He tells stories about the kingdom, about the concern for the poor and disenfranchised. He tells stories about human action and behavior as opposed to simply what we claim to believe. These are just a few of the themes in the stories of Jesus, but all of them line up with the themes from his lived life, the life that he lived. You see it in his life, and you hear it in his stories. Second, we want to focus on these stories because story is powerful, isn't it? Story engages us intellectually and emotionally. I like to say that our brains love stories. In fact, when you listen or read a story, researchers have discovered that our brains light up as if we are in the story. Our brains run kind of offline simulations, if you will, of what it's like to be in the story. That's why we can be so moved by a story. Why we suddenly cry or laugh or get angry when we're hearing a story or watching a story or reading a story. It's as if we're in the story and in fact in a kind of way we are. Great storytellers, and clearly Jesus is one, wants us to imagine ourselves in the story. How would we act if we were the prodigal father? Or the rich man in the rich man and Lazarus story? Or the persistent widow? How would we feel if we were the workers in the vineyard and who had worked all day long only to find out that those who worked less than half a day got paid the same amount as we got? Stories are also powerful because they resist single interpretations. Are you with me? This is important. Unfortunately, some of us have been locked into one interpretation of many of these parables. Now, maybe that's because we often heard the parables first when we were children. And we were told that they kind of had a clear moral, like one of Aesop's fables. And so we almost think of them, some of us, as children's stories. Or perhaps we were told by a well-meaning pastor or a Sunday school teacher that there was one obvious interpretation for this story, for this parable. And sometimes even one of the gospel writers will attempt to give us a meaning that might be true, but maybe not the whole story. Sometimes Jesus himself explains a parable, doesn't he? And often he doesn't. Maybe we just don't have the explanation. We don't really know. Nevertheless, stories are powerful because we can go back to them time and time again and find new truth, new wisdom, and new challenge. Think of the plays of Shakespeare for a moment. Hamlet doesn't have one meaning, one performance. Countless authors have talked about and wrote about and continue to write about Hamlet and what Hamlet means for years, right? Why wouldn't we do that with the stories of Jesus? Now, parables are also powerful, friends, because they unsettle us. They should afflict us, 
with the unfamiliar and the new. Theologian Amy Jill Levine says that if we listen to a parable and think, I like that, we're not listening close enough. Just like Jesus, life itself, the stories he tells, unsettle us and challenge us. They afflict us as much as they can also at times comfort us. Again, as Amy Jill Levine states, we should ask less, what does this parable mean? And we should ask, what does it do? What does it do to me, the hearer? And what does it call me to do? Are you with me now? So if we get caught up in trying to find a one-size-fits-all explanation for any of the parables, we're missing the genius of Jesus. We're missing the opportunity to find multiple, uh, uh, multiple meanings and multiple readings over the course of our lives. We're reading the parables, but we're not letting the parables read us. And one of the important elements that might help us read the parables with new eyes is to look for the moment in the story where we are surprised. Where we are surprised. Are you ready to be surprised this morning? Now, it will help us to cultivate a sense of surprise if we keep in mind the audience and the time and the place in which Jesus told the story. It will help us to hear the story as first century Jewish listeners rather than interpreting all the stories through the lens of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because those people didn't know that, right? We know it now. They didn't know it. Reading with the past in mind will help us to find important surprises and meaning even here in our 21st century. One thing that will definitely limit our surprise is if we think of the stories or parables as simply allegorical. Now, allegorical, right? You remember that from English class. That is where one, there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between the details of the parable and the details of the outside world. This is that. That's allegory. And that's okay, and that can also be true. But I want to suggest to you this morning that sometimes a sheep is just a sheep. And not an unrepentant sinner. Sometimes a king is just a king, and sometimes a father is just a father, and not a stand-in for God, although maybe also a stand-in for God. There may be allegorical elements to a parable that might be helpful and meaningful, but we do our best at being surprised by the parable if we don't foreclose too quickly on an allegorical interpretation alone. Okay? Let's let these parables read us. So let's think about the stories that you heard this morning. The lost sheep and the lost coin. And next Sunday, the lost son. Have you ever thought about how noticing one lost sheep out of 100 would be hard? Sheep don't stand still, do they? They tend to move around, I understand. And they often look a lot alike. It might be difficult for anyone to notice that one had been lost. It also would be hard for some of Jesus' listeners, particularly the poor, to even imagine having 100 sheep or knowing someone else who had 100 sheep. Furthermore, if the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes in search of the one, when he gets back, he's going to have one sheep. Are you with me? Because the other ones will have wandered. <laughs> 
I think that there was clearly some humor in this story as Jesus told it to his listeners. This parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin have often been discussed as allegory, right? What I just mentioned a minute ago, where one thing stands for another. The shepherd is God or Jesus who cares so much about every single person sinner that he will leave all the other behind to find the lost one. Luke narrates that the lost one is akin to a sinner who repents. And this makes sense, right? Because Luke, in Luke's placement of the story, Matthew has, also has the sheep, but he puts it in a different context to make a different kind of point. In Luke's context, the religious leaders have been grumbling against Jesus because he's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. This is a great explanation that Luke is giving us. But maybe we can take that and also dig even deeper this morning. Maybe we can find some additional meanings and places where we might be surprised by the story. Luke tells these stories of Jesus to let us know how much God celebrates over one repentant sinner. And that is true, friends. Amen. God likes to celebrate. Jesus likes to party. Amen. And Christians ought to as well. But here's where things get a little surprising because, you see, the sheep and the coin haven't sinned, have they? And they certainly haven't repented. The sheep and the coin don't come to their senses, as we will hear next week when Joe preaches on the lost son. The sheep and the coin don't even seem to care if they're found or not. So is Luke correct that God and the angels rejoice when one sinner repents and comes home? Of course he is. This is the great news of the gospel. But remember, we want to resist only one interpretation to these complex stories. We want them to disturb us in good ways and to surprise us. So what if instead of focusing on being found, we pondered being lost? Instead of thinking about being found, we pondered being lost. We often identify with the sheep or the coin, don't we? But if, what if we were to identify with the shepherd or the woman? What do we lose in our lives? Who do we lose? And what do we do when we, hopefully, notice the loss? As we have already noted, we all know about loss. Some of us have loss imposed on us from the outside. We may have lost our sense of value through hurtful messages we have picked up that communicate we're not worthy to be sought after. And if found, we're pretty sure that no one would throw a party. Someone have some of us have lost a sense of our own value. And of course, there are also the lost among us. Those whom we don't see go missing. They are, in a sense, lost, aren't they? Think of unhoused people, people different from us, those who don't know the joy of following Christ. Probably the religious leaders of Jesus' day didn't see the tax collectors and sinners, at least not the way that Jesus saw them. To the religious leaders of the day, those folks were lost. This leads me to another surprise in these stories. 
The stories are given titles in our Bible, aren't they? But guess what? Those stories weren't given by Jesus. The lost sheep and the lost coin. Perhaps, perhaps the lost sheep should be called the initially oblivious shepherd. For sheep will wander. It's their nature. It's the shepherd who loses the sheep. Or perhaps the lost coin might be entitled the absent-minded woman. For even while, the, even while the sheep did wander, the coin certainly did not. If you read these texts again carefully and slowly, what you'll notice is that the shepherd lost the sheep and the woman lost the coin. And here's another surprise. Again, we like to read these stories like we are the ones to be found. But often we need to be the finders, the searchers. We need to beat the bushes. We need to look under every rock to find those who have wandered off. We need to go in search of those who are lost and don't know how to get home. And maybe don't even know that there's a place that they can call home. Oh, that's good stuff. Should be lots more amens right about here. Amen. <laughs> what if these stories also call us to take responsibility for lost things and for lost people? I sometimes talk to people who will say things to me like this. I don't feel close to God anymore, Brad. And I'll ask them, well, tell me about the relationship you are having with God. And guess what I hear? Often not very much. They've lost something, but they're waiting around to be found. For some of us today, it's time to take responsibility for a sense of lostness in our own lives. And sometimes we, the body of Christ, the church, we lose people in our midst. People come for a while, but perhaps they don't find what they need, perhaps because we're not doing what it takes to keep them. Sometimes people come. <laughs> right? You heard that, right? We, they wander off. And sometimes we don't even notice. We don't take responsibility until one day we look around and ask ourselves, where are all the young families? Where are these people? And where are those people? And what happened to that people? And why are there not these kinds of people in our midst? So I ask you, who's missing here? What group of people do you not see? Who should be part of this body of Christ that are not part of this body of Christ? Who is not in our midst? These folks are lost folks, and we may be responsible for their loss. What keeps us from noticing these losses? And what keeps us from searching? Maybe we're too comfortable with letting God find these folks. Or at least the pastors, that's what we pay them for, right? Or maybe we don't want to do the kind of hard looking that we see in the shepherd and the woman. This kind of finding is not only hard work, it can also be, as the saying goes, dirty work. If we go searching, friends, we might get our hands dirty. 
if we start searching and looking too closely for the lost. We might find ourselves in some uncomfortable situations, struggling with some uncomfortable feelings in some uncomfortable realities. Isn't that what we pay the pastor for? You see, searching has consequences. When the leaders of Jesus' day saw him hanging out with sinners, and by the way, do you notice in the text that the sinners find Jesus? Oh, we could talk about that all day. When the, when, the, when the religious leaders find that Jesus is hanging out with sinners, they must have thought to themselves, what a, what a waste of time. He's lost that time. He's never going to get that time back again. <laughs> you hear? Searching for lost parts of ourselves or the lost that are not among us is hard work. It's between time work. It's between t- searching and between finding. And it might bring criticism and discomfort. And it might mean leaving the comfort of the flock to go into the areas that have been unexplored and to do the dirty work of turning over cushions and looking under couches to find what we've lost. And the truth is that we would rather be found than to be the searchers. Well, now I'm getting personal, right? Remember, Amy Jill Jill Levine says, if you read a parable and you think, I like that, you're listening wrong. Or you're not listening hard enough. Now, friends, I love you. You know that. Of course, of course, of course. On one level, the shepherd and the women, the women are stand-ins for God or Jesus. We have been emphasizing all the way through this sermon series the story that the grand narrative scripture is about a God who relentlessly pursues us and a God who rejoices when we are found and when we are brought home. Amen? Of course, of course, of course, that's the story here. But these parables, I think, are also about lost things that we must take responsibility for. They are about how we, as the body of Christ, must become searchers. These stories about lost stuff are both encouraging and comforting, as well as disruptive and disturbing. So the, rather than asking today, what do these parables, parables mean? I ask you today, what do these parables do to you today? And what do these parables call you to do today? Thanks be to God. Will you stand with me and receive this benediction? Good friends, good seekers, good shepherds, good women turning over couch cushions, receive this blessing. Now unto him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine by the power at work within us. To him be praise in Christ Jesus and the church throughout all generations to come. In the name of Jesus, in the name of love, we pray, amen. Go in grace and peace.